reveal yourself to us. You reveal us through your wonders of nature, but also through time and history. And we've been blessed to study the, his- the history of this Reformation. As we look back on those saints who have gone before us, help us to look forward to the challenge that is still before us as we continue to learn about you and to reform our living. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Actually, that was a very apropos prayer. Good morning, everyone. Did everyone enjoy their extra hour of sleep? Or did you stay up later knowing that you were going to get that extra hour and decided you didn't need it? Yeah, right. I know how that goes. Okay. Now, I wanted to start today. I think my gain is a little too high here. Oh, okay. Uh, I wanted to start today with a kind of a summary of, uh, you know, what we have studied. I, I basically thought of asking all of you to stand up, and I know Pastor Michael would appreciate this, uh, all of you to stand up and recite all of the confessions and creeds and catechisms that we have studied in their entirety, but I realized this was, that would not particularly work. So I decided not even to ask you to enumerate them. But what I have, you have a couple of handouts on your tables. One is this sheet that says at the top, creeds and confessions we've studied. And then underneath that, the reformers and their big ideas. So I'd like to start, I'm glad that you are seated at tables, Um, try to draw together enough to have a good discussion for small groups. And what I'd like you to discuss for about as long as it takes my tea to stoop (laughs) is on each list, on each list, the creeds and confessions and the reformers and their big ideas which, with which do you resonate the most? With which do you resonate the most? And if we have time to get to it, with which do you resonate the least? With which do you resonate the least? And we will start that discussion at your tables now. Yes. Let's begin to wrap up the discussion, please. Okay. You probably on some of those topics would have liked to have had more time to discuss, but we do have to move on. So first of all, let's turn to that list at the top of the page, creeds and confessions we have studied. Would anyone like to share which one you found you resonated with the most? Our table was really um, pretty much, I think the the first response we had was, these are the ones that we did as, um, Confirmants in our catechism and our early studying. These are the, this is the first one I memorized, and I think there's a certain uh, 
comfort and familiarity with those that we knew from heart compared to what we learned in this class, which oftentimes seemed rather distant to us. Okay. How many people would share that sentiment? Okay. I would say for all of the one through eight, um, I, I was raised in the church, so I already was aware, I'm pretty confident in my faith, but the last four, or at least nine, 11, and 12, kind of resonate with me just because they're more, there's a lot of social justice references that's mm -hmm. more relevant in my lifetime. Okay, any other reflections, comments? Okay, I heard two things that might be worth noting. One is memorability. Particularly if you had an early upbringing in the church and in accordance with that very much um, uh, builder and boomer mentality of education, we, you were forced to memorize certain things. They don't do that anymore, I don't think. Um, and the second was contemporary issues or contemporaneity. I'm not sure how to spell contemporaneity or anyway, even if that's a word. Any English majors here? Okay. All right, I'll, t I'll take a clue from Samuel Johnson then, since he wrote the original English dictionary. Okay. In other words, we have two different values here, in a sense. Um, the important thing about memorabilia, it reminds me of the comments of the authors of a British satirical book called 1066 and all that, who said, history isn't what happened. History is what you can remember. Okay, so history is what you can remember. And therefore, the real issue sometimes with some of our creedal statements and some of our confessions is that they are hardly memorable. Now, for those of you raised in the Presbyterian Church, um, if I were to ask you, what is the chief end of man? Sick. Okay, what would you say? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's memorable. What is your only comfort in life or in death? Oh, Cindy, I definitely want to hear you say it. precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins and redeem me from all powers of the devil that without the will of my father 
not a hair can fall from my head. Uh, That's quite enough. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now you know why John relies on Cindy to keep track of remembering information. Good memory, okay. Uh, on the other hand, the value of contemporaneity is that it dovetails with the present day. Not so much what you remember from your past as what is happening right now. You know, the social justice issues are, you know, sometimes talk about current issues, current, you know, current questions. Now, there can be an easy tension between these two, can there not? That very often, we remember what we learned in childhood or our youth, and that becomes, in many ways, the standard when we're asked, you know, what do you believe? On the other hand, when we encounter a statement that seems more up-to-date because it is addressing issues that we are facing right now, right here in our society, all of a sudden that resonates in a totally different way. And the two are not easily reconcilable sometimes. Okay, now the subject that I'm supposed to address today is Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformandum, which means Reformed Church always reforming. So what does this particular issue tell us about the need for continual reformation? Anyone take us, want to take a stab at it? Hmm? We need to get about it. We need to get about it, but... What we need to realize, perhaps, all of those historic creeds, the one through eight, as was mentioned, were addressing what at the time they were written were contemporary issues. But we are facing different issues now. And hence, what you can remember of those wonderful historic creeds may or may not address the contemporary issues we face. May or may not address the contemporary issues we face. Anybody want to say anything about creeds and confessions we studied with which you resonated the least? Whichever is the longest. Okay. Well, I think if you actually did, it would be a close contest between the Second Helvetic and the Westminster Confession. Okay. And what's the problem with something that's overly long? It's not memorable. How many people here could recite from memory the entire Westminster Confession? How many people here could recite from memory any of the Westminster Confession? 
Point made, okay? Now, let's turn to the reformers and their big ideas. With which ideas did you resonate the most? Anyone care to say? Yes. Martin Luther, justification by grace through faith. Yeah. Yes. It is really fascinating to reflect that. We are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation because we just had the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's posting the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And Martin Luther, as you mentioned, had absolutely no intention of reforming the church. Certainly not of launching a movement of the Reformation. He was posing those as subjects for debate. Okay? I'll throw a few comments in about Luther, and I assume you're going to be consistent and ask us who of these people and ideas that we resonated with the least. You want to go to that right now? No, I don't. I just want to, I want to condense both responses into one. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, uh, unlike many of you, my, my mind was a virgin field of snow when I became a Christian with regard to Christian faith. I knew zero. I had never read the Bible. Nothing. Nada. I was 20 years old. The first Christian book... Uh, that a pastor gave to me in the first Christian book, fully blatant Christian book I ever read, was Martin Luther's commentary on the epistle to Galatians. And it's this thick. (laughs) And I I was like, oh, well, the pastor gave it to me, so I powered through it. And Zev, it was like shocking to me. One thing I couldn't uh, believe was how, um, how much dirty language and earthiness and scatology and insult and uh, he would be great for today's political scene. He could really get in there and throw the mud big time. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, weird. I didn't. So anyways, I go on in my life and uh, go through some hard times and somebody gave me, uh, my professor in in school told me, uh, read table talk. So I read table talk, which is comments of Luther sitting around the table that his students would take down every comment. And I would just sit there and laugh uproariously because this would be like a guy that when I was not a Christian you could go to a bar with and have a beer and just I mean he was that earthy. It was like shocking to me that that he would be that way. So I really liked him because he was a human being. Now what's the Latin phrase that that Luther says? uh, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously a sinner justified and, and a sinner. And Luther exemplified that for me perfectly because he's not a model of Christian deportment if you really get to know him. He's really kind of a crazy guy in a lot of ways. Anyways, but he clearly pointed us to Jesus and the cross, and that's, that's the most important thing. And the reason that I have the most problems with him is the reason I have the most problems with me. Because, yeah, I'm justified, but I'm a sinner. And 
we all do things that are inconsistent with what we really believe. And it's shocking when you find out you're trying so hard to be what God wants you to be and you're that sinful. And at the end of Martin's life, he published all this really horrible, hateful stuff about Jewish people. Oh, and it has hurt down through the ages so badly. And I look at my own life and I say, yeah, well, that's, that's the issue. You know, we, we all fail and we hurt people. So I, I like Luther for those reasons and because he shows us that um, probably all of us make huge mistakes, and, but Christ is the one that justifies us. That's, that's the thing that saved me with Luther. So sorry for so long. Anything else? Anyone else? Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. I value a great deal the um, Wycliffe and Hus. I think um, as you were talking about the historical context for them, I, I've, I realize how much I take those things for granted, that I can read scripture and know scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to me directly through scripture. And um, the, the whole idea of the community of, that we all have access, that we are, are a community of believers, the priesthood of all believers, that um, again, that, that as a Presbyterian, I take that very much for granted. And so I, I value very much for those who historically claimed that for us. Okay. Any other comments? What about ideas that you resonate with the least? Anyone? Okay. Seeing the time, it's time to move on. And so I will share the one idea with which I resonate the least. And that is the first one on the list. Marsilius of Padua. And the supremacy of civil authority over the church. Because in some ways it goes back to the very roots of why the church needed reforming in the first place. It goes back to the very roots of why the church needed reforming in the first place. Because of some events that happened in the early fourth century of the common era. In 312 CE, there was a battle at the Milvian Bridge and two generals were facing off against each other. They were actually secondary emperors already in the Roman Empire and rivals for power in the Western Roman Empire. One was a general by the name of Constantine who was a worshiper of the sun, of Helios. Okay, a worshiper of Apollo, basically. And he, according to the story, saw a vision on the eve of the battle 
of a cross in the sun, probably actually a Cairo. Okay, time for a little artwork here. That's Chi and Rho, the Greek letters Chi and Rho, which are the two, first two letters of Christos. And he had his soldiers paint that on their shields before they went into battle. And he won the Battle of the Milvian Bridge and became the emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, he didn't stop worshiping Apollo. In 314, the next year, when he issued the Edict of Milan, granting legitimate status to Christianity, it now became a religio religita, as the saying is in the last, illicit religion. Previously, it had been a crime to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. Okay, why was it a crime to be a Christian in the Roman Empire? Well, the emperor was worshipped, but it goes deeper than that. How did Jesus die? At crucifixion. Who crucified him? For whom was that a form of capital punishment? For the Romans. And who did they tend to crucify? people who were guilty of sedition against the Roman state, people who attacked the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. Therefore, who were Christians following? An executed traitor. An executed traitor. This goes back to the very roots of Christianity. Now, the emperor started favoring Christianity for a very good reason. He needed to run an empire. How do you run an empire? You need bureaucrats. You need bureaucrats. Or to use a less weighted term, administrators, okay? And to do that, they have to be able to read and write. By the time the last empire-wide persecution took place under his predecessor, Diocletian, there was one problem. After they tried to go after all the Christians in the Roman government, the Roman government stopped working because it turned out that the Christians, by and large, were the only people who could read and write because they wanted their people to read the Bible. And therefore... They were the most literate group in the empire. So Constantine knew, okay, if I'm gonna run this empire, I need the Christians on my side. But the problem, of course, was the Christian church was anything but undivided at that time. And therefore, he needed some kind of religious uniformity to unite his empire. You remember the whole idea that takes place through the magisterial reformation. That political unity requires religious uniformity. That's why the Anabaptists were persecuted. And therefore, he called 
He called, the emperor called, for a council of the church to take place in a city called Nicaea, near his new capital. And he presided over that council. He was the presiding officer. What was the big irony about that? He wasn't even baptized yet. He had not yet been baptized. He was only baptized on his deathbed. And he was still minting coins that showed Christian symbols on one side and Helios or Apollo on the other, called hedging your bets. Okay, but what it established was a pattern which remains to this day in the Eastern Orthodox tradition called Caesaropapism. Caesaropapism. That the political ruler is the head of the church. Now, the Pope decided to try a different tack. And so sometime around the 9th or 10th century, it's not clear which, but they do know now, a fellow by the name of Lorenzo Valla in the, in the Renaissance uncovered this fact. A document was produced called the Donation of Constantine, where Constantine supposedly donated the western half of the Roman Empire to the Bishop of Rome to rule. It was later discovered this was a forgery. So this led to constant conflict throughout the Middle Ages between the Holy Roman Emperors and the papacy over church or state supremacy because in the West, what was followed was papal Caesarism. Papal Caesarism. Now, in order to basically try to get at the corruptions in the church, why did Marsilius of Padua favor dominance of the civil authority over the church. He was applying the concept of Caesaropapism to negate papal Caesarism. Okay. And that set the tone for the entire Reformation, except for the radicals. Except for the radicals. All of the confessions that you've got at least one through eight were all basically made as legal documents by the state. They were legal documents by the state. In other words, who was deciding what the rule of faith was? It was the government, not the people of God. Okay. So, which idea I resonate the most with? The radical reformers who were basically going back and saying, since Constantine, the entire church has gotten it wrong. Caesar is not the ruler of the church. He is the ruler of this world under his suzerain, Satan. Okay? That's, that was their attitude. That was their attitude. Okay? Now, 
The reason I'm doing this is that essentially what happened to the church under Constantine is a change in how we understand the kind of community the church is. Because the church ceased to be what we might call a communion of believers gathered around a common table and became a hierarchical institution of power. A hierarchical institution of power. It went from what we call an ecclesiology of community to an ecclesiology of power. And the basic problem is that that is how it has always behaved since then, is as an ecclesiology of power. That even though in this country, the church basically has no real power and shouldn't have real power. So, I think at this particular point, I warned Dan that he might want to have a vacuum cleaner, a broom, and a dustpan handy to sweep up the broken glass. On the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I think what we need to do is say to all of the reformers and their confessions and creeds, thank you, we've learned a lot from you, but now it's time to move on. And it's time to reform the Reformation, maybe by laying it to rest. Maybe by laying it to rest. Okay, no static electricity yet. Now, why do I think this? What I'd like to describe is something that I learned in seminary. And this is a model for theological reflection a model for theological reflection. And basically, the model was that there are three basic loci, if you will, three basic sources for our ideas when we think religiously. On one hand, we have our tradition. Tradition, tradition, okay? Now, by tradition, I don't just mean post-biblical ecclesial traditions. I mean everything that the church has handed on to us, okay? Because the word tradition comes from the Latin traditio, which means to hand on. So that would include scripture, the writings of the church fathers, creeds, confessions, catechisms, commentaries, everything. That's all the tradition. That's one source of ideas. But there are also two others. Another is cultural information. cultural information. And the problem is we, it is very hard for us to really perceive this. 
because what that basically means is everything that goes into growing up and living in 21st century USA. That is all cultural information. And we've been getting that cultural information from the time we were in the cradle. Because the most basic cultural information that we receive earliest on is language. Language. And language now shapes every response we make to what we perceive as reality. But also included in cultural information are our politics, our economics, our entertainment, and our technology, and that is huge. Technology is huge. And the third is personal experience. Personal experience. Now, each of us experiences life, experiences God in our own very unique and personal ways. There are a whole lot of commonalities. There are a whole lot of resonances that take place. However, there is a sense in which my experience is sui generis. It is one of a kind. It's not identical with the experience of any other human being. Now, what I want to suggest is whether we like it or not, this is not a prescription for how things ought to be. It is a description of what actually takes place in human experience. We are all of us theologians, and we are constantly carrying on this theological reflection, which is always an interaction of our tradition, of our cultural information, and our personal experience. There is essentially only one choice we can make about this process. And that is, are we going to do it mindlessly or mindfully? Are we going to do it unconsciously or are we going to do it consciously? If we do it mindlessly, we are going to be continually blindsided by the apparent cognitive dissonance, especially between tradition and contemporary culture, but often also often between tradition and our personal experience. Because one of the things that we just did in that summary exercise was try to bring together tradition with personal experience. And it doesn't always mesh. Especially, it doesn't always mesh for different cohorts, okay? It doesn't always mesh for cohorts. cohorts. There's a second model I would like to present to you. I was trying to come up with a more accessible synonym to the word hermeneutic, okay? So I came up with spirit of Spirit here with a small s, emphatically, not a capital S. 
And what I want to suggest is that if we are going to carry on this theological reflection mindfully, consciously, intentionally, what we'll find is that we'll probably go through four stages. The first is the spirit of application. And that is where we see the tradition as authoritative and we seek to apply it to any situation that we encounter. We seek to apply it to any situation we encounter and we seek to apply it to ourselves. Now the basic problem is when we're doing this mindlessly, when we're doing this unconsciously, it will not work for one very simple reason. We are trying to apply yesterday's answers to today's questions. We are trying to apply yesterday's answers to today's questions. This leads me to my favorite definition, which is a personal with mine, I've never heard anybody else give this, what dogmatism is. Dogmatism is a set of answers that have lost track of their questions. It's a set of answers that have lost track of their questions. And if people are not asking the same questions here as they are here, a simple hermeneutic of application, a simple spirit of application may not apply. Just may not apply and it may not work. The second stage, usually when this breaks down, is a spirit of skepticism. We now turn in this spirit, in this stage, into applying our critical faculties to the tradition itself. We begin to carry out a critique of the sources of our tradition. We begin to question our tradition. But again, one of the things that we may do if we're not doing this mindfully, if we're doing it mindlessly, is that what we will usually find is that we are mindlessly applying the answers of today to the questions of the past. And that won't work either. We are mindlessly applying standards borrowed from contemporary culture to the tradition, often totally unaware that we are probably dealing with totally different frames of reference in terms of our understanding of reality, in terms of our language usage, so on and so forth. But this is something we have to go through. Now, there's a very good reason why. It sort of has to do, um, there is a, I can't remember, was it Fowler who did the stages of faith? Yeah, that we all go through stages of faith. And uh, to put it, you know, not to get into too much detail, I'm reminded the Episcopal Bishop of Massachusetts years ago, James Coburn, started out actually as a college chaplain somewhere in the uh, New England and a student came to him and said, Father, I don't know what to do, I've lost my faith. And he said, no, you haven't. 
The student said, what? He says, you've lost your parents' faith. You haven't found your own yet. In other words, he had to go from filiative faith to owned faith. From filiative faith to owned faith. Okay. It's like, I can't remember who the philosopher was who said, a little philosophy estranges a person from God, but depth in philosophy leads them back. Okay, which was something I sometimes found to be true as a philosophy major. So, this is a legitimate thing. I learned another thing about skepticism. This is fascinating. When I studied some of the writings when I was in Israel of the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, probably the foremost Jewish mystic of the 20th century. And Rabbi Cook basically talked about the fact that all of us in life are continually growing. And that means that we are growing intellectually as well as physically. And the problem is our spiritual growth does not always keep pace with our intellectual growth. And therefore, the only way our faith can express itself in those circumstances is as doubt and skepticism. Because we know we can no longer believe what it is that we used to believe. We can no longer believe, but what is fascinating is for Cook, this is an expression of faith. Because it is saying, I have to believe something, but I can't believe that anymore. And some people, unfortunately, get stuck in it. That's what happens to atheists. That's what happens to atheists. I'm reminded of, again, I can't remember the name of the philosophy professor who said that he had always a standard approach when someone came up to him and said they were an atheist. He said, well, describe this God in whom you do not believe. And so they give some sort of Sunday school definition of God, and he said, I don't believe in that God either. I don't believe in that God either. The third, and here is a very important step, is the spirit of reappropriation. The spirit of reappropriation. The best way I can put it is, what can we pull through the lenses of our critique that is still of supreme value to us where we are today? What can we pull through our, the lenses of our critique what is still meaningful and significant for us today? And this is why there is a need for continual reformation. In other words, we have to become self-consciously post-critical theologians. Self-consciously post-critical theologians. And that's not easy. That is not easy. Because it means admitting, it's sort of like the work I used to do in the family systems workshops that I went to as a clergy person. 
You know, most people, when it comes to the cultures of psychology, the only thing they want to look back at their family history for is to find the sources of their neuroses, to find the sources of their pathology. But in family systems work, you need to recognize that your family history also is the source of your greatest strengths, of your greatest strengths. So it means going back to that tradition you've just demolished and saying, what, how do I believe something different? What can I pull through my criticism? And finally, once we reach the stage, I think, of spiritual and theological maturity, we move to a spirit of hospitality. And the spirit of hospitality may be the most challenging of all because it is a matter of fact that we are living in a culture, in a society that has not one tradition, but almost innumerable traditions. And many people for whom those traditions are the source of meaning. And we are living in a multicultural society. A multicultural society. And in many ways, we experienced that last spring when we did the coexistence course. Christians, Muslims, and Jews in this country are merely the three largest religious bodies. There are also Buddhists. There are Hindus. Each of them, of course, has its own fragmentation to deal with. Also, besides multicultural, a spirit of hospitality means being open to the personal experience of others whose experience is different from our own. It reminds me of an old rabbinic saying, Ezehu chacham, who is the wise person? Halomed mikol adam, the one who can learn from everyone. The one who can learn from everyone. Now that doesn't mean we discard our tradition in favor of another tradition. But it does mean that we have a great deal to learn from talking with Muslims about their tradition. We have a great deal to learn about talking to Buddhists about their tradition. But because of the society we live in, we have no choice. We have no choice. Let me also close with another observation, and this is sort of interesting. Um, Pastor Michael forwarded me some links to some articles about and by Phyllis Tickle, who's a writer and historian, who talks about the idea that there is, in a sense, a major paradigm change in the church about every 500 years. And so we are due for another. We're due for another, okay? Now, I chose not to really use that extensively, but one thing that I noted is that in a very real way, you can pinpoint those 500-year intervals and you can see them in relationship to major technological changes 
that completely transformed culture. At the time of Jesus, the big technological transformation, the Roman road system. The Roman road system. Because that network of roads, which was built to facilitate the Roman legions and their travels and their marches, actually became the network for the propagation of the gospel. And if it were not for that Roman road system, the Jesus movement would have remained a small, local, minority sect in the locality of Israel, of Judea, and would never have spread. It was because of the trade and the communications facilitated by those roads that the gospel spread throughout the Roman world. The next 500 years, which saw the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, and again, huge cultural changes. Anybody care to guess what the major technological shift was that in effect brought that about? This is one I don't know if you would guess. The stirrup. The stirrup. Because the Romans didn't have it and the barbarians did. It was invented in Central Asia. And as a result, the barbarian invaders with their cavalry were able to run circles around the Roman armies and decimate them and destroyed the Roman Empire in the West. That was huge because you no longer had a unified cultural scene. Okay, in the year 1000, anybody care to guess what the cultural, I mean the technological shift was brought about by? What? Which ships in particular? The Viking longships, thank you, you got that one. Okay, the Viking longship, because it again made international trade explode. In fact, it did something very important for the future of Orthodox Christianity because a Viking by the name of Rurik sailed up the rivers into what was then known as Rus, now is Ukraine, and established the first Russian state. The first Russian state. And it was his descendant who converted to Christianity and made Russia what it is today, which is the bastion of Orthodox Christianity. 1500, what was the big technological breakthrough? The printing press. The printing press. And what did the printing press do, first of all? It increased literacy throughout Europe dramatically. More people now could read than had ever done so before. And they were reading in the vernacular. The printing press also made possible the first critical editions of biblical texts in the original languages. So all of a sudden people weren't dependent upon the Vulgate 
but they wanted the Bible in their own language. Whammo, huge. But a third thing, you remember what John said about our friend Uncle Marty? I mean, the man absolutely had a talent that was unequaled for vitriol, for insult, and therefore he became one of the world's most prolific pamphleteers. The pamphlet could be run off quickly in huge numbers. The Reformation and the Counter-Reformation were pamphlet wars. Pamphlet wars. Don't forget, the 95 Theses were printed, I mean, were, were you know, placed on the church door in Wittenberg. Luther didn't publish them. Other people thought they were so great, they copied them down, took them to their local printer, and the next thing you know, they were all over Europe. They were all over Europe. And Uncle Marty discovered he had a wolf by the ears. Now, what's the current technological breakthrough? The internet. The internet. We now have more accessibility to more information than any other time in human history. We have, in fact, so much information that we frequently find ourselves in information overload. But that means that, you know, our culture has changing, and another fact that goes into that, this is a really fascinating fact, I've mentioned this before, the absolute majority of all the scientists who have ever lived are alive right now. The absolute majority of all the scientists who have ever lived are alive right now. What that means is not only is there change, but change itself is changing. The speed of change is not linear, but exponential. And therefore, we could easily be caught totally blindsided by cultural factors over which we have absolutely no control and which may take us in directions we could not foresee or even care to go. So, What do we do? I am reminded of a line of T.S. Eliot's from one of his choruses for a verse poem, verse drama called The Rock. And the lines are, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Now, I never even got to the other handout, so I'd like you to just go ahead and take that home. And as you look at it at home, you need to sort of ask yourself, am I more comfortable in column A or in column B? 
My guess is that most of the people in this room are probably more comfortable with column A, the column on the left. However, what you need to be aware of is that your children and grandchildren are more comfortable in column B. They're more comfortable in column B. Okay? Oh dear. Well, Dan, I see you're going to need that cleanup, but not for the broken glass. Comments, questions? Folks, this is, yeah. scholars are not united in this, but sometime about that time, there was a technological breakthrough, and it's not one you would think of. The domestication of the camel. The domestication of the camel because what it did is it made possible caravan traffic. Other comments, questions? Folks, thank you so very much. I have really enjoyed this. Again, we look forward to the next series, and Dr. Uh, Keith Lloyd will kick off Human Rights and the Christian Church. Time to reflect, time to react, and time to stand up. And I hope you can see the progression from what we've just gone through, our past history, and, and, and what, what we're being challenged to do. And he has an extended series. This is the introductory topic, and he'll go into uh, much more. You can find it uh, on the church website. I don't think it made it in tidings, but Cindy is going to put out an email also. And I think the next series uh, will take us right up to Christmas. Uh, Deb Rutlett has uh, agreed to end uh, that series with a Christmas message and try and tie this all together. At least I ask her to. She's a pretty free spirit. She could do anything, but, but I ask her to. So that will conclude this year, and then I'll try and get the uh, topics out for next year. Thank you.